0: The history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazman
1: To hear what they all have to say all right, welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast. Um, we are here for a special episode today—not one of our usual yearly episodes. We are talking to the author of a book called *Chadwick: A Man of Many Parts*. Charlie, uh, this is written by Nick Richardson.
2: Yes, who we've spoken to earl- before on the podcast about one of his other books, uh, *The Game of Their Lives*.
1: Yes, yes. yep. Um, yes, Charlie. Who is Bert
2: Chadwick? Bert Chadwick is a man of many parts, isn't he? So captain of the 1926 Melbourne uh, side, uh, the premiership side in, in that year.
1: So what you're saying uh, is all the supporters who are riding high on the 21 premiership, don't hear about it, what get around premiership this. captains. When, another premiership
2: cap, captain coach in 26, then president of Melbourne during the great heyday of Norm Smith, then president of the MCC, Involved in the RAAF in World War II, Involved in uh, the Australia, the AFC, the Australian Flying Corps in World War One. Uh, involved with the Olympics, the moon landing, the centenary test, gas. Yeah. What didn't he? What didn't this man do? Um, it's incredible that we don't know more about him. That his name isn't synonymous with the AFL. Mm. uh so it's it's great that Nick's written this book that the MCC have published it in their their first publication as, yeah. a, as a publisher, which is awesome. So uh, enjoy the interview.
1: All right um, welcome to a special episode of Kick to Kick. Um, we are lucky enough to chat again to Nick Richardson who has written a book on Albert Chadwick. Uh, Nick, welcome to our podcast.
0: Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Charlie. Okay. Thanks for having me. No,
1: lovely to, lovely to speak again. And Nick, I'm not sure if you remember, you're actually, you were actually the very first person we ever interviewed as well on our podcast when we spoke to you about um, a game of their own.
0: Uh, a game of their own?
1: Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah,
0: we spoke well, to you. Well, that's man, terrific. I, I think it was terrific. early
1: 2018, so. Um,
0: yeah, 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 good. Well, um, great, to, great to be back with you. Let's put it that way.
1: How times have changed since we first spoke.
0: Oh, too right. Absolutely.
1: We could officially say friend of the show as well, I think.
0: Yes. Yeah, good. Happy, happy to wear that and thank you for including <laughs> me.
1: Um, so Nick, I'll get straight into it. Um, and I think last mm. time we spoke to you, you said you were possibly working on a book about Bruce Sloss. Um, so why why Albert Chadwick? What attracted you to this story?
0: Well, it's it's an interesting thing because, you know, I I didn't know I didn't know about Albert Chadwick, and I'm kind of I, I feel a little ashamed at my level of ignorance about him. Uh, but the MCC uh, has uh, uh, just over the past couple of years established its own publishing program and they wanted to do a biography of Chadwick. One of the things that had been driving that was for many years after Sir Albert had passed away, his, his daughter had, had kind of basically said, look, that Dad's archive's here, you know, can you do something with it? It'd be great to do a book about him because you know he's he's a significant figure. Anyway, sadly that never happened in her lifetime, but the MCC maintained the desire that if they were going to do a book and start this publishing program, uh, Sir Albert Chadwick should be the first cat off the rank. Uh, so they uh, picked me and said, do you want to do it? And it was interesting because in the, those early conversations about Albert Chadwick, the phrase nation-builder came up, and I thought, nation-builder? And then the more I got into it, I just thought, this bloke's remarkable. You know, yeah. the depth of he, the fields that he touched uh, are, you know, extraordinary, really. So when
2: when they approached you about it, how long did, the, did it take you with a, like, when did you, in doing your research, was there a moment where you were like, "Yeah, I'm keen. I want to do this," or was it a slow, like, was there one piece of information where you were like, "This guy was incredible," or was it a slow build of finding more and more out and being like, "Oh, yeah, this this sounds really good." Uh, well, I suppose
0: it actually happened at a couple of levels. You know, the preliminary research kind of convinced me that there was clearly a story to be told. Mm. And then once you, once I kind of went on that journey, there were there were there were moments where you know you kind of go, "Gee, how about that?" <laughs> you know, uh, um, and what I what kind of amazed me was that the moment, the pivotal moments he found himself at, over a period, significant period in Victorian and Australian history, kind of dating from the First World War through yeah. to the nineteen 19- Eighties. I mean, there yeah. are very few figures I can think of who can take you from the First World War to the Centenary Test. You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's a remarkable breath.
2: He, yeah, he was he was there, as you said, like there at all those moments.
1: Like mm. Mm. amazing. And was yeah, there yeah, pressure yeah. on you being the first cab off the rank in terms of the MCC's publishing?
0: Uh, not that I no, I wouldn't have thought. No, no, not at all. I think the pressure was. Came in a in a kind of an implied sense that the Chadwick archive would reveal um, so much about the man himself. But mm. one of the one of the really interesting things about the archive was it it really it wasn't full of the kinds of material that you might expect in a personal archive. It wasn't that exchange of letters with famous people. It wasn't the the moments of vulnerability expressed in Some kind of communication with a sibling or or whatever. It was very much a kind of a a formal archive, uh, which you know there were people who had written. I think he kept every congratulatory note and telegram he got on on getting his knighthood, um, which kind of just you know told me something, but it didn't tell me necessarily all I wanted to know. So, uh, very interesting.
2: And the, the, the forward written by the President Michael um, Happel goes into that about how, as you've just said, there's so little, there was so little personal stuff. Mm. Did, you, did you feel like, as you learned more, that made sense about who he was as a person, that he didn't, that he didn't keep those personal letters and kept
0: more of the sort of... Um, it, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting question. And, and I think in a way... The word I used a moment ago actually kind of, I suppose, in a sense, betrays the the character of the man, and that is that formality. Mm. Uh, and and I think um, there's actually a line that some of the MCC um, marketing uses, referring to him as enigmatic. I think that's true, but in, in a way, I, I, I think more in the sense, it's captured by that that um, old-fashioned sense of decorum. And yes. that that sense of privacy that says, that, "Well, this is my business," uh, and you know, I'll, I'll keep I'll keep what I th- think to myself until I need to express it.
2: Yeah, amazing. Now, leaving on, I mean, with this, we've we've been talking about, you know, the, it's it's been kind of the year of Demon, right? Twenty twenty one, very yeah, happy yeah, year yeah. for me as a Melbourne supporter. Oh, congratulations. Say. <laughs> um. And it's been great to have all this this stuff coming out about people who have been linked to the D's, and we had we we spoke to um uh, or the earlier um, who wrote the book The Last Hurrah, talking yeah, about yep, sixty four yep. coming out mm. earlier this year. So was there was there any sort of um, was that planned in any way? Like, did you <laughs> no. when you started doing this have any idea uh, of what was coming, or was it just no, a happy accident?
0: A happy accident, and, and you know the MCC is very happy about that happy accident. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, no, it, it wasn't, but I, I actually felt, you know, there's a kind of kind of that lovely synchronicity about it that I, I felt you know it was good that, you know, in the way the planets aligned for the memory of chadwick mm. uh, that, that, it, that it coincided. and because you know obviously he'd been there uh, in the two, you know, the eras where Melbourne was was a. Was a powerhouse, uh, and th- and then uh, all those fellow years, as you know only too well. Um, <laughs> uh, he and and you know he makes he makes a kind of an appearance at that at that next famous moment. So that that was kind of nice from that point of view. Yeah, and it's really interesting. Um,
2: you know, this year there's been so many comparisons to that to that you know unbelievably successful time of the fifties and sixties. But as he, I, I loved um, the fact that Chapter Four, and this is named Drought is Broken, and it, it talks about that earlier drought from 1900 to 26, and how mm. he was so instrumental in breaking that. There's kind of a lineage with that, as well as what's happened now with this, with you know breaking that hoodoo of who me, who is you know there's almost this um, feeling of no one really knew who Melbourne were, and and sort of floating around without having a sense of identity.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the really interesting things, and, you know, to to make it as contemporary as possible, you know, a lot of the conversations around the Demons this year was about how Goodwin um, and the people around him, like Kate Roffey and, and all of that, how they had helped kind of reshape the club into something. And, you know, there were all those stories about, you know, isn't it amazing that uh, Kate Roffey's taken up, how, how robust and resilient the culture must be at Melbourne that they can replace a president seamlessly and, it, you know, earlier in the season and then progress to a premiership at the end. So one of the interesting things about the Chadwick era at Melbourne was this very similar sense that what, what was occurring at the club was a, was a cultural change as well. Mm. And the way that they saw themselves was in many ways embodied by by the kind of man that Chadwick saw himself as, and the, the, you know as you as I refer to in the book, there was these references to manly behaviour. You know this notion in the 1920s that good men behaved in certain ways, and yes. and the way that Chadwick conducted his his uh, play on the field was demonstrably uh, true of the way he was off the field too. Fair, mm. hard, and you know, uh, gentlemanly. So yes. all those all those things, I think, fed into the notion of what Melbourne as a footy club saw itself. Um, and he, as the captain coach, was was the archetype of of that behaviour.
1: Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, so Nick, the book starts in Tangarama up in
0: yeah
1: uh, in Regional Victoria. Uh, was there much mm. up There was there much knowledge of Chadwick and, and what he'd done when you
0: mentioned uh, him? No, there wasn't much Tim. and in fact, it was kind of an interesting thing that you know there, there are a couple of families up there who have kind of been there across a number of generations and they kind of uh, you know the name was his name was marked down in the old kind of school books and stuff like that. but um, there was no real sense of uh, him being celebrated. There were a couple of people I ran into because I went to a footy match there. A couple of people I ran into who who attended on the on the day that he went back when they um, opened the local uh, club rooms and named named them after him um, in '83, I think it was. Uh, but they were, you know, they were a bit amazed because one of them said, "Oh yeah, there was this, you know, really flash car pulled up outside the ground. <laughs> <laughs> this bloke got out and." It was all very all very interesting from that point of view. But uh, in the same way that Albert didn't really have any great connection to the region anymore, the region didn't have any great connection to him either. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Nice. And, and I was expecting it in the book that, you know, you, you went back to World War I and you delved into some more footballers during war. Um, yes, can't,
0: can't help myself, too.
1: No. So how, how much extra work did you have to do about Chadwick or was it all kind of there already?
0: Well, some of it was there, but there was also the, the I mean, because I the previous work I'd done in World War I had largely been about the AIF yes. in particular, so I hadn't done much mm-hmm. about the Australian Flying Corps. Um, and this particular unit in the Australian Flying Corps was one that was just remarkable. Uh, because not only were they pioneers in terms of the, the, them being basically the first unit of, um, you know, the, what, what later became the RAAF, but seven of the members uh, of this elite squad um, were all knighted, yeah. later became knights, including, obviously, Bert Chadwick. And he was the only one of those seven who wasn't a pilot. Um, and the work he did, basically as, a, as an engineer, um, was, you know, pretty dangerous. He found himself, you know, having to go to stranded, broken down planes to try to fix them in hostile areas in the Middle East. And, you know, it, it was certainly important and dangerous work and, you know, um, it was something that my research had not kind of revealed much about until I started down the path of looking into what he'd done. And clearly, you know, they were pretty remarkable blokes.
1: He linked to Lawrence of Arabia as well, which is pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he met Lawrence. Don't think he thought much of him. No, I love
2: I the quote calling him a boot-faced Englishman. I thought
1: that was fantastic.
0: <laughs> it's a ripper, isn't it? <laughs> um but you know the other thing was that because Lawrence flew a lot with the legendary Ross Smith, um, uh, and and Bert was great mates with Ross Smith, and and as far as Bert was concerned, you know Smith was was the best, possibly one of the best men he'd met anywhere, anytime. time. Um, so I think Bert came into quite close proximity with um, with T. Lawrence, you know with. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and obviously that like that's where he learned a bit more about the game and, and and those sorts of things and then coming back to melbourne the the way that he went about sort of getting to the demons was so interesting and and you mentioned you know early in the book uh, about the, the fact that he really wasn't backwards in coming forwards in terms of mm. speaking speaking up about his own ability you know ability not afraid to put himself up for, for new things and I love, you know, when he was um, at Turak and not impressed with what he saw and t- told to put up or shut up and he definitely put up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and then also then writing a letter off his own back to Andrew Manzi at Melbourne saying, can I come down and train? Mm. Um, did, was that something as a personality trait that would have stood out even more in that Time than it does now because it's it's very as you say in the book it's sort of an un-Australian thing to, to you know, um, light your own candle or have tickets on yourself, um, but even was it even more so in that
0: time? I think it's it's an interesting uh, interesting way of looking at it. I think uh, for me the way that I saw it was as perhaps a logical outcome of the company he had kept, uh, he had been, you know, bear in mind, um, as Tim, Tim asked, you know, he, he's come from country Victoria. Yeah. Uh, his father's passed away uh, before he, just before he turns eight. He's be, taken on family responsibilities um, as, you know, the, the eldest child, uh, and he's actually become very much self-taught around his engineering. And yes. then he survives the war in the company of a group of men who are probably more formally educated than he is. They come from a, a far more uh, elite background. They've probably got more wealth. Um, and he has grown in confidence, surrounded by these people. Uh, and he he walks away from that war with the confidence of knowing not only he's survived, but that he can walk among people who he would traditionally consider his betters. Yes. So. Yeah, that's
2: that's so interesting. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So he yeah, turns up at Turak and, and kind of goes, oh, I can do that. <laughs> yeah. Like, I love, yeah, I love that. I love that idea of someone <laughs> rocking up
2: and wearing their light horseman, like their light horseman boots and just running out and just <laughs> tearing yes. yeah, it yeah,
0: up. Yeah. It's fantastic. Great, isn't it? It's great. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Um, and the, the other thing which is just after that and I, I sort of hinted at it before is um, I, I, and I, as, a, as a Melbourne supporter I, I, I really picked up on this was that you're saying you know at the end of that that sort of first decade in the, nine, the 1910s and stuff, a lot of those BFL clubs are really are really understanding who they are and what they represent you know those those strong suburban clubs of Collingwood and Fitzroy have, a centre and have a suburb where they're really strongly held, whereas Melbourne, because of their connection to the MCC and where they are, struggled to find that. And, um, yeah, and, and how do they connect? Do they just, are they only connected to the well-heeled men in the city or is that, you know, is it too niche? And I, I wonder whether you, you felt like looking at that, whether because I sometimes still do, like, is, is that a, still a problem that sometimes faces the Melbourne Football Club?
0: Yeah, I think it's. I think it still does. And, I, you know, I think you only have to listen to the coulda beans <laughs> on a Saturday <laughs> to, to know how uh, it, durable the cliched stereotype preconception about Melbourne supporters is. But I also think in some ways, to go back to that earlier comment, I think what the other clubs had in that era as we say, is that, that geographical base. So in a sense, because Melbourne didn't have that, they, they had to look for other things. And one of those things was this notion of what it is to be, to play the game well and appropriately. And, of course, that fed very much from that old amateur ethos, which said that amateurs were in, in so many ways uh, the, the pure incarnation of sports people. We play for the love, not the money. Exactly. So uh, that 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 notion of of who we are, I think, um, was the the kind of the flowering um, of that that amateur idea from the start at the club.
1: Yeah. Nice. Um, Back to the war, just for a second, because I know you love talking about Mm. Um, it. One important aspect you touch on is the way the war acted as a great kind of recruitment platform for new footballers. Especially heading into the twenties, and so many of those mm. champions that we know from the twenties were war heroes as well. Um, what the yeah. war, as tragic as it was, was able to act as a stepping stone like that.
0: Well, there are a couple of reasons, and I suppose one of them was that some of those um, some of those players were uh, obviously, as you know, as we discussed all those years ago, um, some of them didn't make it home, but there were, there were some like Chadwick who actually. Found that they could play footy in a war condition, and they learnt to play it basically with this wonderful perspective that it's footy, mm. you know, it's not life or death. Um, so, I, and and you know, um, although there were some pretty awful conditions to be endured on the Western Front, if you're playing footy in the Middle East, you you know, you're not you're not going to be worried about um, biting winds and uh, Large mud puddles, hmm. so you can play in good conditions. Um, yep. You can kind of develop your your, your skills, um, and you can kind of come at the, come away with a bit of confidence with all of it. Um, but I also think one of the things that's actually quite often forgotten about is that because they were quite often a collective of young blokes who were really good athletes, good physical skills, um, and Uh, the standard of some of these scratch matches that took place, whether it was on the Western Front or in the Middle East, were pretty good. Yeah. So, you know, so in some ways, those blokes who came back who'd had that experience of footy in the war were actually, you know, they'd gone through a pretty good school, for want of a better word, by the time they either started their careers or resumed it um, in in the 1920s. Yeah, almost playing in sort of all star teams in the
2: yeah, yeah
1: across the
2: across the land yeah
0: yeah yeah
1: and yeah. the same thing happened in World War Two as well.
0: Yeah, it did actually. Yeah, absolutely true. Um, probably more obviously in World War Two. Yeah,
2: mm. yeah. Um, the thing, um, one thing that I thought was really interesting was uh, you mentioned a book, uh, the, the book about football that um Bert wrote with mm. Doc McHale, um, mm-hmm. the Australian game of football, mm. and I. Uh, I I'd, I'd never heard of that before reading reading this, and I, I um I was just wondering was that did, you you obviously read a copy of that or read yeah. parts of that was it an interesting it, read? It,
0: well, <laughs> um, no, no. Look, it, it's it, it's if you read it now, after all we know about modern footy, right? You know, mm. when we look at it every week, and we kind of you know we got champion data and all that kind of stuff, and yeah. we, we go wow, you know, you know. She's the hardball gets, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then you then you go back in time and you read McHale and Chadwick and you kind of go, hmm, really? <laughs> <laughs> so you, you actually do have to put yourself in the time. You have to be thinking about what footy looks like in 1931. and yeah. <laughs> um, And, you know, it's, as I think I say in the book about Chadwick's uh, the way that he dealt with the Essendon mosquito fleet, yes, yeah, uh, w- was a, was a kind of classic instance of you know you just drop one man back um, oh, in, yeah. in modern parlance, okay. um, and you know they basically kind of pick up the the loose the loose man, um, yeah. but in those days, no one did it because because footy was relentlessly positional.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. So it was all the the thing it's it was those things that we now think of as just part of the game that yeah. were yeah. were incredibly forward thinking for the time
0: yeah they were yeah, they were and and you know you have to kind of accept that there's it's kind of, it's a bold way of approaching it to kind of go no no you don't stay on your man yeah. you actually go go and look after this bike over there cuz he's going to be bursting out of the middle with with the footy, so you need to stop him because he won't have a man on him.
2: And that's it. And obviously, I mean, we're talking about a game that's been played since the 1850s, and 50s, and this is you know, which ha- which obviously had evolved. But
0: mm.
2: thinking of it as a non-positional thing is is quite interesting to start, start seeing those tweaks and changes. It.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and and yeah. it's interesting though because of course um, evolution is about reaction and adaption, and the Essendon Mosquito Fleet in its day was enormously successful. But it was a new way of doing it because they had three or four very small, fast men, mobile, who could run off their opponents, um, and that was considered an innovation. And so one innovation occurs, how do we deal with it? This is how we deal with it.
1: Yeah. yeah. And the other thing well, is it, that- it,
0: Sorry, Joey. Sorry so you go
1: say, to. That, that book is one of the, the very first books on Australian rules football as well. There's not many that predate that.
0: Uh, there isn't one. There isn't one really. No. But, you know, in terms of looking at the tactics and and in that sense, it's a good point you make, Tim, because, you know, the reality is that for a lot of people back then, the thought of what tactics are were kind of fairly limited. Mm-hmm. Um Uh, And so in a sense, I think it actually underlines McHale's claim on, you know, being a coaching legend. But it also, I think, speaks to Chadwick's deep understanding of the game as well.
2: And it leads back to uh, what you were saying at the beginning about him as such an enigmatic character, is that we know, you know, in the the popular vernacular, we know of Doc McHale as... Brilliant tactician of his time, but he's written this book with Bert Chadwick, and and we don't mm. hear about him in the same sentence. So mm. it's yeah, it's fascinating.
0: Yeah, it is. It is.
2: But would you would you put that comparison together of them both being quite
0: brilliant tacticians in the game of the time? Uh, look, you know, um, as I you probably may remember from last time, I'm a Collingwood supporter, so of course I <laughs> will say McCaw yeah is, is the pinnacle but i'm not quite sure that that bert is in the same league simply because he he didn't do it for as long yeah and and the other thing too that you know we we haven't mentioned but should is bert went and coached hawthorne um yeah. for free after after taking the demons to the flag and then um, Getting. leaving that, that coaching to uh, um, Ivor Warren Smith. But mm-hmm. Hawthorne was in its infancy in the VFL. Um, I think if, a, if my memory serves, he coached them to four wins in that, that season that he had them. Um, but he admitted that he didn't have basically the, the cattle to, yeah. for them to go any further. So, you know, he understood his own limitations, I think. Um, whereas I think it's fair to say that Jock probably had pretty good stable for a, a, a lot of years.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And a good
2: backer with Johnny Renn. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Story for another time.
1: <laughs> um, let's, uh, let's back off the ball for a sec and go down the, uh, into the, his professional life. So he was a big player in the gas world. Um, Nick, how difficult was it to try and make this information interesting to the reader?
0: Mm, I think that's a really <laughs> it's an interesting one, Tim. you You can tell me whether I've made it interesting or not, because <laughs> um, I, I suppose in a sense, it's um, what prism that you look at it through. Mm. And for me, I felt uh, maybe it's the old journal in me or, but it felt for me that the best way to tell that story was, through the relationship with the Premier at the time, Henry Bolte. Yeah. Um, and Bolte was clearly, uh, had his political agendas and Bert's, Bert kind of kept bumping up against that um, during the course of um, those gas negotiations. So it became, you know, who was the bigger bull in the paddock, basically. Um, yeah. And hopefully um, that kind of comes through in the book because ultimately in the end, um, they had to negotiate and they had to reach a point where the end result was going to be for the benefit of Victorians. And, um, Got it. Uh, but it, it, took a long, it took, it was a very protracted set of negotiations. Yeah.
1: yeah. Did you have and, to educate yourself on sorry. the world of gas as well, Nick?
0: Yes, I did. But, and interestingly enough, one of my mates is a, uh, is a gas pipe engineer. Uh, and, uh, he was a little bit helpful,
1: <laughs> just as well, as well. You would probably probably very impressed that you wanted to talk to him
0: about all this stuff as well. Well, it, it's a good point you make because he said to me, "He said no one ever talks to me about this stuff." <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love it, but it, 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 is it was an interesting way to weave through the story of how it linked back to you know what was happening in in football at the time and what was going on in the world at the time, and it kind of put put. Uh, the game in 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 its place in the larger world as well, which I thought was really interesting. And then later on when you talk about the the um, the negotiations he tries to have with uh, Norm Smith and the board at Melbourne after he's gone through that and can't get it done. I like that yeah. sort of wrap up of yeah he's yeah, dealt yeah. with the with the hard boys in gas and he can't can't yeah. figure out Norm.
0: yeah yeah well and look you know speaking of enigmatic you know i I think norm norm is you know the classic case um and yeah i I think uh i think bert was knew when to walk away from that one um but he couldn't walk away from the gas one no (laughs) no
2: (laughs) and that leads on perfectly to the next thing i want to talk about which is that relationship when when um Bert was president, and Norm was in charge. Of, I mean, we 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 know the story of '65, and obviously that was after um, Bert had left as as president, but was still involved was involved later on in that. But how it seemed from from what I from what we read that they managed to continue having quite a cordial relationship, where Norm fell out with so many people on Melbourne's board and, and really rubbed up against them. Um do you think that that gentlemanly stoic manner of of Chadwick's helped complement the more fiery Smith and and how important was that relationship in the in the success of Melbourne at the at that time?
0: I think during those those that run of flags, I think Bert's relationship with Norm was pivotal, but the relationship with Ivor Warren Smith and 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 Norm Smith w- was really important too, mm-hmm. um, and, and you know th- they ran a really tight uh, tight ship at Melbourne in those days. Um, I think one of the things that worked was there was clearly some mutual respect that was that was that was happening. Uh, Norman had uh, you know Norman Burt had had a, a moment. Uh, probably more than one, but I could only find one instance of it where uh, where Bert had tried to suggest that Norm pre-game might consider a certain selection and uh, Norm had corrected Bert about who was actually in charge of such things.
2: <laughs> that um, was his real bugbear, wasn't it? He
0: didn't like people yeah.
2: talking to him about selection.
0: No, no, no. And, and But I think the thing about Bert is that... Um, I think he always had that skill to know who the expert in the room was, mm. um, and I think that that's a very—it's a—it's an egoless skill in some ways because you kind of take yourself out of the picture and go, "Okay, you're 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 the person," you know, and I think that was in the end what kind of kept that relationship ticking over, and and Norm knew that. Uh, but you know had his back when, when he needed to
2: Yes, yeah, and I guess that that was something that uh, I thought shone through really clearly was that I, I don't and reading more about Norm in other books as well, I don't know whether he felt that many people above him had his back when it came to no. Melbourne, but the fact that he did think that with Chadwick definitely would help to lead to that to that period of success, definitely.
0: yeah. And and look, looking through the the, the Melbourne Footy Club minutes, um, you know Bert's quite public in the committee room about, especially in the early days, uh, about his support for Norm. Uh, and yes. I'm sure that that that's communicated to Norm. Either Bert's told him, or it's been made clear to Norm. So I don't think he's in any doubt that 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 Bert's on his side.
2: Was it an absolute masterstroke of Birchadwick's to bring Jim Cardwell in to be the go-between?
0: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely stunning bit of recruitment, that one. (laughs) Um, You know, when you you look at, you know, the great draft picks over the years and all of the the recruiting coups, I reckon Cardwell, who was, you know, just... And the other thing about it, and this is a really important development, is making Cardwell... Full-time paid secretary.
2: Yes. Which which
0: was which was an innovation in its own right, which kind of basically meant that it it was a, you know, it it gave Melbourne room to grow as a club, but it also meant that there was Jim had a bit of extra time to devote to placating um, some of those who had been burnt by Norm's occasional excesses.
2: What a job! I'll tell you <laughs> what I I feel for him. I do.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, you wouldn't want that job.
2: No, no. And then moving forward to the later in his career after he took over the MCC, um, how difficult what do you think it was for him to view his own his old club through a different lens? You talk, you know, in the set in in the seventies and stuff about how had been a, a quite a, a period of time and he, he did have more distance but having such a long connection with the club and still being the mcc having that same connection um it must have been hard for him to manage in his own mind that that relationship between the melbourne football club and the mcc and and looking after the mcc first and foremost i guess
0: yeah it's it's a I think it was a conundrum for him uh, at times. I think it got easier. um, And, in fact, he he kind of felt, I think, some years after Norm had gone, that the the footy club had basically not so much lost its way, but had kind of perhaps lost some of its focus. Um, Yeah. And and in a way, it made it a bit easier for him to pull back a bit. Um, But I... I kind of got a a sense and, you know, I've got no, I I can't be specific about it and it feels a bit speculative, but I think it's true to observe at least that he became, once he became president of the MCC, his, um, his view became a bit more global. Yes. He couldn't really be seen to be in the demon's camp he needed to kind of have that that um, that larger perspective, and I think that's ultimately um, perhaps coincided with that time when when Melman was was struggling, and it and, and it kind of made it that poten- potential cognitive dissonance was was uh, mediated by that larger role.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned you know, and probably the fact that. No, none of the same people who he worked with at Melbourne were were there at the time when
0: yeah no that's true sort
2: too, of that's separate that's, would that's, have helped also I imagine yeah that's a good point. If yeah. dissonance
1: is definitely the right term though, isn't <laughs> it we, yeah <laughs> and then you and then Charlie on that you talk about you know him standing up to Henry Boltie or like th- those negotiations and then dealing with the AFL or the VFL then on the whole Waverly situation as well and here like. Yeah, I feel like all that stuff you did with the gas companies and and Norm Smith and Melbourne, like that all almost led up to that that negotiation to kind of protect the MCG and the MCG. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's true, Tim, and I I think I think one of the really interesting things about this and this was something that I did find in the archive, which I don't think um, had been known, is uh, Chadwick had embarked on a covert public relations campaign to basically shore up the MCG as the home of footy um, when Waverley was you know striking out boldly as, as the alternative, especially as, uh, as a potential grand final um, ground. And yeah. the, the PR um, campaign was very subtle, very strategic, um, and probably worked, um, and, and that was Chadwick. And part of his faith in, in public relations had been the, some of the lessons he'd learned over the years, m- most specifically when he was in charge of RAF recruiting um, during World War II. So there's a... I, I think, you know, this, this document I came across in the archives which kind of spelled out the PR strategy for the MCC, it, it actually shows how important that that rivalry with Waverley was and and it was in in many ways perhaps a, a bit of an existential threat to
2: mm,
1: absolutely
2: and amazing obviously how successful he was in that that you know we don't even think of of that as a possibility I,
0: anymore <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely yeah. I, I mean you know I, I went to finals at Waverley and that and yeah, it was all right, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's not the G on on uh, on the big on the big day. It certainly isn't.
1: No, nothing
0: is. <laughs> no, no, true, true, true. How
1: did uh, How did you settle on the front cover? Why not an action shot of him playing or like a, a the, the war hero f- f- uh, pose?
0: Yeah, well, look as you can tell from the photos inside, there's there were a couple that that could have fitted that mould, mm. but I think because he's a, an ex-president, it was very much uh, taking the official portrait. There's two of him, actually, um, at, at the at the ground, and, in fact, the Chadwick room, which is uh, one of the main committee rooms at the MCG, actually has this portrait of him hanging on the wall. And, in, in fact, one of the early meetings to discuss this uh he was in that room so i felt like he was i felt like the eyes were watching me as i uh...
2: <laughs> just making sure you were dotting the eyes and crossing yeah, the yeah, t yeah yeah
0: yeah
1: yeah <laughs> um, nick the more we talk about him the more i'm convinced that he is the forrest gump of australia <laughs> <laughs> He's ah. just, but he's like he's in the background of you know, World War I and the Olympics and the moon landing yes. and the centenary yes. cricket game and like so many big events in Australia, you know, the, the recent history. He's kind of there. What, what yeah, do you think his yeah, legacy is? Uh,
0: look, th- that's the really interesting question, I think. Um, my view is that his legacy is that he, he's actually the exemplar of a certain kind of Australian man of a particular time. Uh, He's enormously successful. He's a self-made man. He's pulled himself up by his bootstraps and he's found himself in a series of really important positions, making a great contribution. And, you know, you won't find people like him in our society now. They'll be far more specialized. you know, siloed, I suppose, is the word. Yeah. Uh, but he had the energy, he had the contacts, and he had the expertise. And you know, to go to our earlier point, had the confidence to kind of go, "Well, I'll take that on. I can do that." Yeah.
2: So what? Was and the- also that, as you
0: mentioned earlier, that
2: deference to bring good people around him who could help yeah, him yeah. In, in all those areas.
0: Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think that's a really critical thing too. Um, mm. And that's that's good leadership, you know. Yeah. And, in a way, that's what I suspect. If you're going to say, well, what did footy teach him about broader life? I actually think, although he didn't quite articulate it that way, I, I'm sure one of those things was get good people doing, playing their role. Their role, yeah. That's what it's all about. Yep, too right.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, now, right at the end, in, in about the last paragraph of the book, you talk about how he so much and you, we've just been talking talking about all those amazing things that he did throughout his entire career starting at a young age in in World War 1 all the way through he lived so much of his life in the public sphere in the public domain and all the amazing things he did in business with the military and in sport as we mentioned at the start it's it's so it's fascinating after reading it that he's not Known more widely in the public vernacular of, 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 of you know the, as you said, like as as a nation builder basically, or at least as a state builder, um, was was that was this part of of, I know you were, you were approached to write it, but once you started learning more, was getting that, um, that sort of message about him across your impetus for how you wrote the book. And and as as you mentioned as well, the um as the second part of the question, sorry, I'm being a bit wordy, is yeah. if do you think, you know, because he was such a gentleman and, and so enigmatic, do you think if he'd been a more colourful character like your your Jock McHales or your John Wren's or these guys who we or you know, your Henry Harrisons, do you think that we might know more about him now if he was sort of that more outspoken person and there, you know, there were quotes attributed to him. And those sorts of things.
0: Yeah, I think um, I think that's fundamentally at the heart of it. He's he's not a public person, mm-hmm. uh, and if he had have been, you know, um, we would have we would know more. Um, and that, that's why I sent. You know, that's why when I talk about the archive being of a particular type, it reflects the sense that this is what people were saying about him rather than what he was saying about anything in particular. Mm. Um, there are very few interviews of, of him that, that survive, for example. He, wanted, he did an interview with his granddaughter, which was, which was sort of reflective, but it was, you know, very much um, a man talking about, uh, and, you know, events of 16, seventy years earlier. So he's not, he's not involved in the public discussion, um mm. at, at critical points like the the, the um, public announcements he makes during the, the the gas negotiations are very measured and certainly not um, he, he's, he's clearly at pains not to escalate this, yes. you know any kind of troubles. When he's interviewed as um, in his football days, he's, He's kind of very calm, he's, he's reflective, he's insightful, but he's not pugnacious, abrasive or aggressive. Which you is know? incredible
2: for a man who got so much done. You, yeah. you think yeah. about the guys, you know, who you would compare him to and pugnacious and, and aggressive is sort of, you think that that's the way that you have to be in order to get this unbelievable amount of work done and, and the fact that he carried it off in such a gentleman, gentlemanly and measured manner is incredible.
0: And, but we should also say that I, th- I think, you know, his frustrations were went on public display on the golf course. <laughs> he, he was apparently a very, very um, animated golfer. Uh, find, find me a person
2: who's not it is the most <laughs> yeah, pr- frustrating true. game on the planet <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. true enough <laughs> when the worst of you comes out to play i think
0: mm. <laughs> and look you know we should forgive him for that you know every, yeah. everyone's got to have an outlet don't they exactly exactly and when you when you're 400 meters away from the next person you can yell and scream as much as he
2: please, right
0: absolutely true <laughs>
2: yeah. so going back to that first part though was that the the way that the way of him uh, the way that you wrote the book really made it clear of of how how wide wide spread his abilities and achievements were and was that was that a big part of as you were collecting your research wanting to portray the man in your writing is that how yeah
0: yeah yeah I, I think so I mean it became increasingly uh, important to me that this guy was given his due.
1: Mm.
0: Um, He's, you know, he's a forgotten figure in Mm. so many ways. And I think one of the interesting things is so much of these issues, whether it's football, whether it's gas, whether it's the MCG, whether it's um, World Series cricket and Waverley, whether it's, you know, Centenary Test, whether it's World War II, whether it's World War I, these things are kind of seen almost in isolation um, but for him, as as Tim mentioned, you know, it, there's that there's that through line where yeah. he connects, he crosses all those things. So to try to tell that life with those points of intersection is, you know, it's it's a compelling story to have to try to tell, um, and um, it it's worth telling. It's really worth telling.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and. As you just said, he uh, he has been a forgotten uh, person in history, but no longer. Now we have <laughs> this amazing book to read, and, and I really, I, you know, I, I can't recommend it more highly. It's a it, fantastic, fantastic oh, thank read. You. It's, it's thank beautiful. you very much. I, I absolutely tore through it. It was phenomenal. And, and um, please, can you tell us, you know, it's not available everywhere, so how can listeners get their hands on it?
0: So they need to go to the uh, MCC website and uh, and hopefully uh, in a couple of weeks they might even be able to go to the MCC in person and, and buy one. But for the interim, it's through the website.
2: Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, especially for, you know, North Melbourne supporters and people like that. It'd be a good read to read while you're watching them play. Oh. <laughs> right. I can say that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, well, Nick, and, and I know Tim will say the same thing. Thank you so much for, for um, spending this time with us. There are mm. so many parts of the book that we barely got to touch on and yeah. you mentioned them, you know, the, the, the cricket, the Olympics, the, uh, the, uh, the World War II recruiting. Sorry, Tim? The moon landing. Yes. There, are so, there, there was so many aspects to this great man's life and uh, it's, it's, as a Melbourne supporter... I love the fact that he's a Melbourne man and and he's getting recognition that he deserves finally after all this time. So it, it, yeah, it's a must read for anyone who, who loves the footy because he's he's so important in in how we see the game and you know and what what we know the game as today.
0: Yeah, well thank you for that and listen thanks for the opportunity um, Charlie and thanks Tim because um, yeah I very happy to talk about a bloke who. Deserves to have his time in the sun. Absolutely.
2: I can't even imagine um, how many, how much uh, that archive. I'm just picturing, you know,
0: um,
2: <laughs> the, like Raiders of the Lost Ark at the end of Indiana
0: Jones. Just <laughs> the- <laughs> yeah, certainly felt like it in the bowels of the MCG, let me see.
1: <laughs> Lovely. All right, well, thank you for giving the time, Nick.
0: No worries, Tim. Happy to do it. Thank you.
1: Um, Charlie, how good was that? Phenomenal. Incre-
2: incredible. Just, uh, you know, we learned so much about this great that man. Was, the Forrest Gump of Australia. I love that line. and Nick, Nick really enjoyed that too, which is great.
1: So we um, renamed this book Chadwick, The Forrest Gump of Australia,
2: not Chadwick, <laughs> A Man of Many Love line. As, um, as Nick said there, I mean, he, the, he was an enigmatic, very private character who lived an extremely public life, and in the public domain, it's not too far to go to say that he was a nation builder. I don't think, with no, all those all. all the things he did, and so much of the way we look at um, the AFL now is based on the decisions he made as head of as head of the MCC, as part of that Olympic Committee, with um re uh, with fixing up things at the MCG and building. You know, he, he has such a legacy in Absolutely. not only the game, but in our entire state and the way that we view ourselves. So so Nick uh, Nick's I'm, done a great
1: job of bringing that to life and hopefully we have as well. So if you're listening to this, you know, we're trying to promote Albert Chadwick and, and what he's yes. done.
2: Yeah. And as we said at the end of that interview, there's not enough time, in you know, to talk about all the different things that Nick mentions in this book. And we don't want to ruin it all for you. So please go out and read it. As Nick said, it's available through the MCC website.
1: Yep. We'll Um, we'll put a link on our socials as well. Yes.
2: And please, please do yourselves a favour and go out and and grab this and give it a read. Uh, Talking, you know, talking about that 1926 premiership year and a few of those games played is fantastic as well for all those D supporters. But even if you're not a Melbourne supporter, there's so much – and you're just interested in the history of the game. There is so much to take out of this book.
1: Yeah, not, not, and it's not, be- not all of it's football either. There's a lot of stuff that's no. outside of football.
2: And it's beautifully written and it's got a great flow to it. So, uh, yeah, as we said, do yourselves
1: a favour, guys, and go out and get it. Cool. You'll, uh, you'll, you'll hear us again for the 1967 episode very shortly as well. Yes. Yes. So Keep a lookout for that. All right. Until next time, Hooroo.
0: find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us by email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.